Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How are we doing, Anchor? We doing good this morning? Everybody had their coffee? Uh, as John mentioned, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And John started this teaching series last week. Didn't he do a good job last week? I, in the first gathering, I asked it more as a question. Did he do a good job? I didn't mean that to be... People didn't know what to respond. They're like, do you want my honest opinion? Uh, no, but we're, uh, we're excited to be in this teaching series where we're covering difficult topics that Scripture speaks to clearly. And here's the thing, you know, like, if, we, if you believe that Scripture is God's word and that you are a follower of Jesus, you go where Scripture goes, even if it goes into territory that's challenging, right? So uh, we're, that's what we're doing uh, and throughout this teaching series, looking at real religion, what Scripture calls real religion. Well, if you're in real estate, you know the three most important words are, uh, all right, there we go. I mean, I don't want to emphasize that again. It doesn't need an underlining, but that was about the saddest kind of like everybody together I think I've ever heard. Some of the realtors in the room are like, no, could we, could we do that again? So I'm going to do it again just for the sake of energy, unapologetically for the sake of energy. So the three most important things to do with real estate are? Okay, don't worry, this is not a seminar on real estate. Uh, the three most important things uh, in relationships, it's three, or similar th- or three things over and over again. So it's similar. It's not location, but it's communication, communication, communication. Anybody that's been married or been in any type of relationship, you, if you have a healthy relationship or, or moving towards a healthy marriage, you know that, that communication is the most important thing. You can't escape it. And there's all sorts of different types of communication communication, right? You know, like communication styles and, and, and different ways that we prefer to communications connected in with love languages. Some of us, you know, and remember that book that we read that one time, love languages. Mine is uh, affirmation and physical touch. So you can just pat my back and say, I'm doing a good job. I'll, I'll be fine for months. I'll be fine for months. But communication styles, then there's, you know, how to communicate. There's a big difference sometimes between, like, what we say and how we say it. Anybody ever experienced that difference between what we say and how we say it? And then there's sometimes, you know, uh, there's, like, when to communicate. The when is very important. For instance, don't bring up budgeting when you are in bed with your spouse. That's not the time to bring up budgeting. Some of you aren't laughing, uh, which means it's a sore subject or you haven't been there yet. I just want to bless you with that pro tip. Here to bless, here to serve. But it's interesting, when we look at Isaiah 58, right at the beginning, and we're going to be looking at the first nine verses, right at the beginning, we see that Israel comes with a complaint. Israel comes with a complaint about their relationship with God, and their complaint is about communication. This is what they say. Why have we fasted, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you've not noticed You could change some of the words around and it might show up in a marital fight, right? Why am I doing this thing if you're not going to pay attention to me? And God's eventual response is startling. God doesn't say, oh shoot, yeah, sorry, I was just playing video games and texting. I should have been more present. Rats. 
I'm going to try to work better on that. Could you give me another chance? And mea culpa. That's not what God says. God's response is startling. At the very beginning of Isaiah 58, verse 1, we read his response. And this is God speaking through Isaiah. And, and, and God says, shout it aloud. He's talking to Isaiah. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. The Hebrew for shouted aloud could be translated as yell from your neck. Not a common expression, but I think we get the point. Really just use all those vocal cords, you know, together in yelling this thing out. What, they say? what, is this, uh, what is he called to say? Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to their descendants of Jacob their sins. What a fun message. Here you go, Isaiah. Here's your job. Tell everybody their mess-ups. Uh, you see that job description on Craigslist. I don't know how many of you are going to apply. Those of you that are interested in applying probably shouldn't. Um, here's, though, what we learn through these first nine verses. If your religion is hollow and your relationship with God is fake, God's not going to pay attention. Wow. Wow. All through Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 9, we see two types of religion displayed. We see what God calls false religion and what God calls true religion or real religion, hence the title of the teaching series. And false religion, we find out, is something that God is not interested in. And real religion is the type of religion that reflects an actual vital relationship with God and that reflects the actual real heart of God. So, in true fashion, scripture begins with the bad news first. False religion is transactional. False religion is transactional. There's two types of relationships, and maybe you've been uh, aware of this. There's transactional relationships and transformational relationships. One of them isn't better than the other, necessarily. We need transactional and transformational relationships in our life to go around and to do life. For example, if you go to Wooden City and you sit down and you expect a transformational relationship with the waiter, you're going to be in a difficult situation because that waiter is going to be nice to you, but only because they get a good tip. They might be nice people, but they're not expecting a lifelong relationship of besties. They're just going to give you the eggs benedict and be smile and ask if you want anything else. It's not a transformational relationship. It's a transaction. Similar with Fred Meyer. You go with your bag of groceries and, you know, and you're, you're, if you're expecting to, to get, be engaged by the end of the tomatoes being swiped through the thing, then you're going to be sorely uh, mistaken. Those are transactional relationships. Now, if you're a church planner like me, you think that you can turn every transactional relationship into a transformational relationship. And so you do sit down at a, at a wooden city or you go to Fred Meyer and you think that this person is your best friend in the future and you just need to actualize it, you know? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it is hard when you think there is a transformational relationship that is revealed as a transactional relationship. Maybe you've been there. Yeah. You're the first person to get your license in your class, and all of a sudden, it's crazy. People are texting you that never texted you before. 
the coolest kids in the class and, and all of a sudden you're hanging out with the cool kids but then there's this weird realization somebody else gets their license and all of a sudden you get less text messages. That's something where you thought it was a transformational relationship but it turns out it was more or less transactional. And when it comes to God and when it comes to religion, God rejects a transactional approach to him. Verse 2 in chapter 58, we see, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. You might underline the repetition of the word seems if you have those, that in your Bible translation. Seems. You ever been in a relationship where somebody seems interested, but you realize they're really not? This is God learning this about Israel. He's looking at the heart of Israel. They seem interested, but really what they want is just something from God. They want a me scratch your back, I scratch your back, or however that's said, type of relationship with God. A social contract relationship with God. Their prayer life looks like most of our offer-up DMs, haggling over blessing. I thought that was going to be a little funnier. <laughs> Offer up DMs? What are those? Alec Moitcher, a Bible scholar, um, wrote this commentary on Isaiah. It's really long. Uh, don't order it unless you want to read a really long commentary on Isaiah. But we've been reading it through this teaching series, preparing ourselves, looking at the context, looking at the original Hebrew, looking at all the stuff that scholars have done a good job helping us understand. And he says uh, what is articulated here in these first two verses is this really important thing I think for all of us to understand is that Israel had started approaching God, the real God, in a pagan way. The way, of, the way of pagan religion is trying to do enough rituals and religious activity to provoke the gods into action, to try to get them to do something on our behalf by mounting up enough religious activity, doing enough religious rituals, doing all the right stuff. But that's the pagan way of interacting with God. The way of the true God is recognizing that all of life is a response of obedience to the gracious and generosity that God has already given us. So our obedience is not predicated on some potential future blessing that, might God, that God might give us, but our obedience is based on what God has already given us, and our obedience flows out of a recognition that God has already been generous to us, and so we live as a response in obedience, not with the appreciation or the potential that God might bless us, but knowing he already has blessed us. And so the scholar is saying they've, they've, they've been around and too close to this pagan religion that they've integrated their, the paganism into, their, into the reality and the approach to the, the real God. It's become a transactional way of living. This is the first aspect of false religion. The second is that false religion is hypocritical. We're familiar with the word hypocritical. 
Uh, maybe you've used it about somebody before they're hypocritical. Maybe somebody's told you that you are hypocritical. It wasn't true if they said it about you, I promise. Maybe it was, I don't know. Uh, but the word hypocritical, like the actual history of the word, goes back to Greek tragedy and Greek drama. And so like the word actually began as hypocritus which is an actor that would put on a mask. So originally it wasn't a bad thing, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good thing, it was just a description of an actor. Uh, but through the centuries and the millennia, it's become a negative thing. Somebody who in their life, not just on the stage, but in their life, puts on a mask. Who puts on a, an appearance, but actually goes about practicing life a different way. This is one of Jesus's main complaints and criticisms of the religious establishment of the day. He calls them at one point whitewashed tombs. This is a, a very vivid way of saying your religion is hypocritical. And this is, again, God's complaint of, way of Israel in this particular time through Isaiah. He says, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Look at that. He's like, yeah, you do the religious things. You do all, you check off all the religious activities. But like, you know, on your way to X religious activity, you're telling your workers, yeah, you better work later and don't expect overtime. And I know if you've taken a 15 minute break and so you better not. And then at the end of your religious activities, you're fighting with each other. You're punching each other. Like, 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 like there's something wrong with this picture. This is hypocritical. And God's response is, is that like, if you engage, if you do this kind of transactional, hypocritical approach to religion, then I will stop listening to you. Get those little foam ear things, put them in there. This is God putting up a boundary. If you're going to continue to like, do this type of engaging, if you're going to continue to live in this toxic, harmful, disinterested way, I'm putting a boundary up, God says. He goes on, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only uh, for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? He's like saying, is it just doing things? Is that what I'm asking for? Is it just doing things? So what then is real religion, we might ask? We've seen what false religion is. Hypocritical, transactional. Here's what God describes as real religion. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. The first uh, line there, to loose the chains of injustice, could be translated in the Hebrew to, to break the bonds of wickedness. What's God saying there? If you know people that are in chains, structural issues that have brought them into challenging situations where they can't break free, 
emotional issues, psychological issues, spiritual chains, social chains, relational chains. What God is saying is real religion is going to those chains and breaking them. That's real religion. He goes on, and he's like, you know, real religion is untying the cords of the yoke. We don't say the word yoke a lot unless we're like, just egg whites, please. Um, but yoke is this ancient Near Eastern thing, or, it's, or still, I mean, not just ancient Near East, but they put the, cat, the yoke on this cattle, and so the, the, the cattle or the ox has to carry the weight of whatever is behind it. So God is saying here, go to the people that are carrying the unbearable weight and relieve them. That's real religion. Jesus in the New Testament, he says, uh, you know, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is what? Burdenful and terrible? No, my yoke is easy. Real religion is taking the unbearable burdens off people's shoulders. It's breaking the cords of wickedness that entrap people. This is real religion. In short, real religion sets people free. Real religion sets people free. Let me just say this very clearly. You can assess how real your religion is by the fact of our people becoming free because you practice it. Are people becoming free because you practice your religion? I like to, this so total, total honesty, transparency here. I like the cosmetic elements of religion. I like good branding. I like, I like you know, good, some lighting. It's cool. You know, I love lighting, you know. Love good graphics. Love a good, love a good, love a good, like, cosmetic kind of element of religion. I love it. Love look and feel. Love all that kind of stuff. Love architecture. Um, love a good design layout. Love all that kind of stuff. But you know what? At the end of the days, none of that is going to matter. None of it's going to matter. And, and if we think, if we trick ourselves into thinking that look and feel, design, you know, all that kind of atmospheric stuff matters more than breaking chains and taking yokes off people's shoulders, God will reject it. Oh, sobering, right? Let's read this again. Emotional freedom. Freedom from just kind of the self. The, those, that little playlist that you have in your head, or maybe you know somebody has in there, I, I, I hate myself, I'm an idiot. You know, going to that and helping over months and time in prayer, breaking that chain so the person doesn't live in that cul-de-sac of shame. The psychological issues. Uh, we, you know, helping somebody find counseling, becoming a mentor spiritual stronghold, somebody plagued with demonic stuff, temptation, accusation, relational stuff, people entrapped in kind of this relational toxicity, structural stuff, things like racism and poverty, going to the chains and breaking them. That's what God calls real religion. Let me tell you a secret. Um, ever had somebody say, I'll tell you a secret with like, you know, a couple hundred people in the room? <laughs> 
Um, this is what we care about at Anchor. We care about it imperfectly, right? But we, this is what we care about. In fact, we have, I, I think we have such a good team that somebody will call us on it if we're kind of straying from it. We try to orient our resources towards this end. That's why we talk about, we celebrate when you know, the host person comes up, talks about, hey, we're, your, your giving went here and here. It's because we're celebrating the fact that you know, your generosity has actually gone to the place and helped to break a chain or two. But the secret is this, is that oftentimes, while we collectively can do a lot and we try to leverage our resources towards those ends, oftentimes some of the best people to break the chains and ease the, take the yoke off and other shoulders are you in your context, in your circle of influence. So if you, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, if you have a God dream, if you have something that you're even intimidated to call a God dream, but you have an idea you're like, I'm not ready to call it a God dream. I'll just call it an idea. Like just, it has to do with breaking a chain or two, breaking a link on some type of chain of injustice or bond of wickedness. Tell me about it and we will leverage resources towards it because the end of the day, that's what we care about. We'll give you money, you know? We'll give you training. We'll help you. Whether it's like you're looking around your neighborhood, you're like, a lot of parents work late. A lot of kids are hanging around doing whatever. Maybe I could start a tutoring thing or something like that. Tell us. Because we are into the breaking chain business. This is, what, this is what, as it goes on in verse 7, it says, describing again what, what, true, what real religion is. Is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? You see, real religion is not just um, setting people free. Real religion is caring for the poor. It's caring for the poor. Here's how the New Testament says it in the book of James chapter 1, verse 27 in the message paraphrase says, real religion, the kind that passes muster before the God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. Now, uh, this is messy work, isn't it? It's messy work. Let me just tell you, usually the things that are worth the most are messy. Because, like, poverty is not a simple solution. You know, just kind of like, oh, oh, somebody's dealing with poverty? Well, here's a whole bunch of money that should solve all your problems forever. That's been tried, and usually the person struggling with poverty has underlying reasons that they're struggling with poverty, and so giving just resources doesn't usually just solve all the problems. It can help out, it can be a band-aid, but a lot of times there are more things at play. It's messy. Homelessness, it's messy. There's a reason why a person experiencing homelessness or houselessness is experiencing homelessness or houselessness because somebody doesn't want them to live in their home or house. It's messy. I've experienced this personally, you know, and, and here's the thing. When it becomes really messy, it's easy for us to go inward and to write a story about everyone we see so we don't have to deal with the messiness. 
I remember our first uh, year, we we're celebrating our first anniversary here at Anchor. Um, I was excited. You know, we had seen God do great things. COVID didn't exist yet. Uh, there was baptisms and people were coming to faith. Our, our, our congreg- church was growing probably honestly faster than we could uh, really healthily scale it. It was awesome. We were talking about a church plant, which has now happened, which is exciting. All this really cool stuff. We we're celebrating our, our first birthday. I got here early and I was kind of doing a prayer walk around the building and I would more often than I would be praying get distracted by some project that hadn't been done yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I was excited though. It was our first year we had cooking it was going to be great. Um, and, uh, and then I looked over and I saw kind of one of our HVAC units, um, which is uh, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. So you got the alliteration or whatever. <clears throat> and um, I'm not like into looking at HVAC units. It's not like a hobby of mine. But it caught my interest because it didn't look like it normally did. And uh, I looked again and sure enough, all the sheet metal was ripped apart and so I looked in closer, and yeah, all the copper had been stripped out of it. Right there, happy birthday, anchor. Hope your kids enjoy a really cold room, you know, as the kids wing. Um, and I got so mad, right? And I wrote a story about who did it, and I found myself getting cynical. Here's, here's why we can't do that. Because I know that all of us have done that. Especially in the last two years. Can I just be real? If we can't be real on like a church, like where else are we going to do it? The last two years, like I know some of us have had businesses that have been, the windows have been broken in. It's easy to write a story about who did it. We've had, you know, friends that have experienced vandalism and all that. And it's easy to write a story so you don't have to just engage with the mess of it all. Years ago, I was studying theology and working at Starbucks because that's what you do when you study theology. <laughs> I was working with a, a, a gal who was studying poli-sci at University of British Columbia. She wasn't a Christian, she let, and she wasn't interested in being a Christian. She let me know that when she heard that I studied theology. Um, but one time when it was just her and I working there, and I've told the story before, so if you heard it, I'm sorry. I'm 40, I only have a limited amount of stories. Um, <laughs> Uh, she said, you know, I'm not a follower of Jesus, you know, I'm not kind of interested in it, but um, there's nobody else working down at Maine and Hastings, and Maine and Hastings was the kind of slum in Vancouver, BC. We called it affectionately shame and wastings. (laughs) Um, She goes, there's nobody else working down there but Christians. I I was unprepared for this, because a lot of times, I would hear people say that Christians were hypocritical and stuff like that, but I'd never heard somebody that wasn't a Christian and wasn't interested in being Christian say something really nice about Christians. But it's true. I was talking to Duke Paulson, who um, is, uh, just to point him out, sitting right there. Uh, He's the executive director of Tacoma Rescue Mission, and we're trying to partner in intentional ways um, with Tacoma Rescue Mission, not just in the series, but all throughout our existence. And I was talking with him before, and he said uh, that, you know, if you took all the funding from churches that, you know, all the churches that give money to Tacoma Rescue Mission, you know, um, Tacoma Rescue Mission would still be, you know, fine. And I said, oh, great, okay, cool, good to know. Uh, uh, But he said, but if you take the volunteers from churches out of TRM's rhythm of serving, then we would be in a very difficult spot. Here's this challenge. It's messy. 
but it's a calling that all Jesus followers are called to in one way or another. Real religion is caring for the poor. Real religion cares for the poor. Here's the thing. If followers of Jesus get cynical and go inward and stop caring for the poor because it's so messy, then who else will do it? Because for other people, it's a choice. For followers of Jesus, it's a calling. You can measure how real your religion is in part by whether or not it prompts you to care for the poor and whether or not it prompts you to be concerned for the poor. goes on. Then your light. This is verse 8. We don't have this on the screen, so I want you actually to do something with me. Close your eyes and just hear these words. This is again describing real religion. Real religion doesn't just break the chains. It doesn't just set people free. It doesn't just care for the poor, but real religion just goes farther. Verse 8, closing your eyes, just listening to those words. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. This is what Israel wanted at the very beginning. They're like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you, God? And God says, at the end of this passage, he says, you, you practice real religion, and then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your light will erupt into darkness, eclipsing darkness. You, wanna, you, you start practicing real religion, and guess what? The darkness goes away. You know how easy it is to defeat darkness? You just put the light on. You just turn the light on. All the darkness goes away. And God's saying, oh, just practice the real religion. The darkness will start to go away and your, and your healing will quickly appear. This is what they wanted. They wanted healing. They had been returning from exile. They saw their buildings in, in, in rubble and they wanted healing. And he goes, your healing happens when you seek others' healing. That's when you experience the healing. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord, the weightiness, the, the, the kabod, the, the heaviness of the Lord will be your rear guard. God's got your six when you practice real religion. Real religion shows the glory of God. I was, um, I was uh, years ago, I was a mentor, a pastor of, uh, of mine, um, his name's Roger McCune. He was a pastor, is still a pastor in a suburb of Ellensburg. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? Suburb of Ellensburg. Uh, it's called Thorpe. Um, if you're driving on I-90, you see a fruit stand. That's about it. You know, a small country pastor in all the senses that you would imagine. You know, there wasn't probably more people than 40 on a, ser- on a service there. Um, and if there was 41, it probably would be a revival, you know? Uh, and so... He also was not just the pastor there, but he, was, he ran the Ellensburg Food Bank. And um, I remember talking with Roger one time and when he was faced with a difficult situation. He told me, I, if I remember right, it was over coffee. He said, Brian, um, we have the opportunity to have thousands of more dollars coming into the food bank, which I know will resource families we only have to take out the Christian parts of our mission and take down the, the, tr- the table that offers free Bibles to everybody come to the food bank. And so I know that this money will, go, will, will help people, but I'm, 
don't want to lose this integral part of who we are as an organization. And he was wrestling with it because he cared about people. He wanted more people to get food and to get the resources that they were providing, which this grant would accomplish. But he also wanted to preserve the sense of this is who we are. Now, his decision, I know there's complex reasons for picking one way or the other, and not always is it easy to make that choice, but his decision was to keep the mission as the mission centered around Jesus and the glory of God and believe that more resources would come, and they did. And I think this has been something that I've thought about. You know, the church is not just an organization just geared for social concern. And the church is not just a mechanism for overwhelming spiritual experience. It's both. You see, if, a, if Christian movements throughout history, and I would call myself a student of history, Christian movements throughout history that have just focused on spiritual stuff and ignored social stuff, they have never aged well. Usually within 10 years, people can look back and say, they actually didn't care for people that much. They did a good job of cultivating spiritual experience, but turns out <clears throat> they were too heavenly minded for any earthly good. And similarly, Christian organizations or Christian missions that just focus on social issues to the exclusion of spiritual realities don't age well. Real religion is the integration of profound social concern with deep hunger for the presence of God. Oh, Anchor, this is what we need to reach for. This is what our heart collectively should desire. Freedom for people. Care for the poor and the glory of God. All of those things. Not compromising on any of them. And this, in verse 9 is where we get the promise. Then you will call. Then you will call. And the Lord will answer. He'll take the little ear things out of his ear. He'll drop the boundary down. You have my attention. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. The band can come on up. Um, I hope that this feels just like profoundly resonant and moving. And this is what we want at Anchor. To be a community that like just really wants the kingdom of Jesus and really wants people that are experiencing challenging situations where regardless of what it is to experience the healing that Jesus can offer whether or not they would become a Jesus follower or not, we do this because we're Jesus followers, not because they might, you know, whatever. This is what we want. And when we live in this way, not only is there that promise that God will show up in our midst and that darkness will be pushed back, but there is an evidence when we live in this way, the way of real religion, when we live in this way, it's an evidence that we actually understand who God is. Because God in the Old Testament freed, the slave, uh, Egypt, or freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God in the New Testament came and was born among us, then died for us so that in his poverty, we might become rich. In his being pinned to a cross, we might become free. 
And when we understand that in the Old Testament, there was actual freedom, that God delivered slaves towards freedom. And in the New Testament, there was a deeper, even more profound spiritual freedom that was accomplished through his own sacrifice, then we know what we're called to do. Find the chains, break them. Pray for those that are experiencing a hardship. It's our calling. So we have communion that we do, we do every week and it's just an opportunity to remi- remember and remind ourselves of the heart of God that, that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, hey, this is my body, it's given for you. And do this, do remind yourself, every time you gather, eat the bread, remember that, that I'm giving myself for you and remind yourself that the core of who God is is love. As long as you get together, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's in the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's shed for you. As long as you hang out, as long as you gather together, drink this in remembrance of me. And remember at the core of who I am is sacrificial love. So I invite you over the next two songs to come forward for communion. If you're not yet a Jesus follower, here's the cool thing. You can be. You can step into this relationship with this holy, beautiful God that calls us to practice a healing, transformative, real way of religion. The opportunity is just saying yes to him and all he has done for you. There's prayer available at the black walls there. And, uh, you know, prayer is just an opportunity to raise your hand and say, hey, I need prayer and I need somebody to pray for me. And don't miss out on that opportunity. We have two songs and we're going to sing. We're going to take communion. We're going to pray. But before, I want to invite you to stand up and I want to pray over us as a community. Take a deep breath. Stand up. Be present to the God that is present in our midst. Spirit of the living God, would you meet us here? Would you meet us in our doubts, in our skepticism, in our cynicism, in our anxiousness? Would you meet us here? Would we hear your call saying, come, come practice my way. Come practice my freedom bringing religion. Come practice my caring for people that are in vulnerable situations. Wait, come be like me. Would we hear you saying that and speaking that over us as a community? And what we might be called, would we step in towards that? Would we might be called and step in towards that? In the powerful, powerful name of Jesus.